Pause the podcast you're listening to right now and subscribe to Ghost Town. Ghost Town is me, Rebecca Lieb. And me, Jason Horton. And we explore all kinds of weird history, true crime, hauntings, paranormal events, and more. We cover the Slenderman stabbing, Tesla's death ray, the D.B. Cooper copycat, the cheerleader murder plot, Heaven's Gate, the Lars Midtank mystery, and Tuesday's Child, Ellie's first satanic magazine, just to name a few. You can find Ghost Town on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. In 1959, Billie Holiday has her last stand, the mystery of Dotloff Pass, the longest flight, and the death of Superman. I'm Jason Horton, and this is Strange Year. I've always been fascinated with the end of a decade. The things that kicked it off could go out of style, and the end of the decade could light a fuse for something new and exciting for the next decade, and 1959 is no exception. It's the 50s, man. McCarthyism is out. Rock and roll is just getting started. And to refresh your memory, here are some more of, I guess, the big-ticket items that happened in 1959. The Twilight Zone premiered on CBS in 1959. Twilight Zone is still going strong in many incarnations, and I feel like there's so many things that we watch, whether it's movies or television, and you could say... Oh, that reminds me of that Twilight Zone episode. Also, The Day the Music Died. Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, The Big Bopper, The Plane Crashed near Clear Lake, Iowa. It's worth noting that Waylon Jennings gave up his seat on that flight. The United States officially makes Alaska and Hawaii the 49th and 50th state. Let's get into some of the events and occurrences you may or may not know that make 1959 a strange year. Billie Holiday, May 1959. I admit I don't know a lot about Billie Holiday. I know she's an iconic jazz singer and Lady Sings the Blues, which was made into a movie. But I didn't realize how how tragic and I guess how much of an outlaw, if I can use that term, she was at the very end And I'm not trying to glorify uh, anything in particular, but, you know, there's something about tragedy in music and entertainment or, you know, public figures that is very compelling. And the last day of Billie Holiday is no exception. On May 31st, 1959, Holiday was taken to Metro Hospital in New York City, suffering from liver and heart disease. She had a lot of drug issues, somewhat notoriously, and a lot of jazz musicians or musicians in general had problems with drugs and heroin, and Billie Holiday was, was one of those. She was arrested for drug possession in the hospital as she was dying, the police were there they raided the room they were stationed at the door I I don't know what kind of stand they were making but and I don't know what they were hoping to accomplish but she remained under police guard at the hospital until she died from pulmonary edema and heart failure caused by cirrhosis of the liver on July 17th 1959 Uh, in her last year she made a lot of money 
in, in, a, in the 50s, especially over a few years span of like quarter of a million dollars. She also had a lot of drug issues and you know issues with fame and success and mishandlings of finances. At the very end, she had 70 cents in her bank account and $750 strapped to her leg. And I went back and I listened to Billie Holiday and I started from the end. I started from her like final recording, which I think there's something really poignant and bittersweet and sad about a final recording, especially when it's during a tumultuous time or it never really got completed. And Billie Holiday's voice is notably more raspy, probably from age and drug use and and there was a lot of the criticisms and as I worked on the backwards her voice is obviously stronger and more smooth but I I really enjoyed the the raspy I mean almost I don't know if if she continued to make music or how close her voice would get to sounding somewhat Tom Waits-ish I'd love to see a proper documentary or a movie that is more accurate than Lady Sings the Blues George Reeves, June 1959. The Adventures of Superman. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. If you're not familiar with George Reeves, he's the original Superman, and the events surrounding his death are mysterious the boy is dead he's been murdered that is the phone call actress phyllis coates got on june 16th 1959 at 4:30 a.m the night of george reeve's death he was at home with his fiance lenore lemon and writer robert condon who's staying with them and around one of the morning two neighbors came over and they were partying or talking and reeves was in bed and he stomped downstairs, told him to be quiet. And on his way back to his room, Lemon had a very, very strange comment to make. He's going upstairs to shoot himself. And I don't know if that was meant to be flippant or there was something telling about it. And she's like, see, he's opening the drawer to get the gun. And then you heard a gunshot. And she's like, I told you, he shot himself. And obviously the cops showed up. She told them she was only kidding. And they found George Reeves upstairs on his bed with a luger between his feet and a bullet hole in his head. The police ruled it a suicide, which was the popular that was that was the popular outcome. Um, but even the L.A. Times said there was quote an element of mystery. George Reeves' mother she didn't believe her son you know killed himself, and I'm sure that's probably very common for a lot of people close to the people that may have killed themselves but she hired uh, lawyer Jerry Geisler to investigate and he's like I'm going to get a second autopsy and the police had never checked Reeves fingers for residue which seems kind of standard if he pulled the trigger nor did they count the number of bullets remaining in the gun there are also bruises on Reeves head and body however they were never investigated and they were they were like this case is closed now granted Reeves you know was very felt typecast being Superman and in the last couple of years work wasn't what he wanted to be fulfilling as an actor he had problems with alcohol 
Not to say that that's why somebody would do that. Now, that phone call I mentioned in the beginning was from Tony Mannix, which was George Reeves' lover. And supposedly her husband was Eddie Mannix, who was kind of like a, I don't know if you watch the show Ray Donovan, but like a fixer at MGM. And he would make, he'd make problems go away. And allegedly George Reeves' wife got together Mannix to make him go away. And allegedly when Tony Mannix was dying and you had Alzheimer's and she was kind of in and out of lucidity, she admitted to setting up the murder of George Reeves. And some people were like, well, she was deep into Alzheimer's and some other people say, no, it was before that. But again, I guess we'll never actually know. Datloff Pass, February 1959. I was vaguely familiar with Dotloff Pass, but what I wasn't aware of is how bonkers the story is, and even more specifically, the theories on what happened to these skiers. 23-year-old college student Igor Datloff assembled a group of 10 people to go on a skiing and hiking journey through the Ural Mountains, I'm saying that right, which was the Soviet Union, I would say it is somewhat above Kazakhstan and to the northeast of Moscow. And they were all experienced outdoorsmen, although it has been said that that information, since it was so long ago, how experienced they were is kind of up for debate, but they weren't just randomly going out there unprepared. There were eight men and two women. They were, again, experienced. They were grade two hikers, tons of ski experience. So they were they were well prepared for this excursion. And actually, on January 25th, they set out to go. And immediately one one of the one of the guys, Yuri Yudin, didn't feel well. And he turned back um, I mean, and that turned out to be uh, fortunate for him. And the rest of them continued on January 31st. They reached a point where the valley that was marked, um, that would become to be Datloff Pass. They stashed extra gear and food they would need for the return trip. And then the following morning, they began their ascent, hoping to just push over the pass and make it to the camp but then there was a fierce snowstorm that pushed them off their route and on the slopes of a mountain named and this is i'm just gonna give this a shot kolat psyche and that's in the language of the indigenous people that live there but it translates to dead mountain and i guess that's all you need to know the altered route meant the team had to choose a new campsite so rather than Going back to a more protected area, they opted to camp on the mountain's exposed slopes. Maybe they didn't want to lose ground, and they felt they were experienced. It could have been too cold. Anyway, they pitched uh, a large share tent, which they, you know, would soon be, you find out that it was negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit. And researchers know a lot of this information because it was pretty well journaled, as expected, and they recovered a lot of film that showed 
as it progressively went on, as the photos went on, it started off very enthusiastic and then it became a little more dour and the group failed to arrive at the rendezvous point at the time they wanted to. So search and rescue teams went out, including army units to find them. And they found them three weeks later on February 26, 1959. They finally located the camp and it was it was weird, especially I'm sure in 1950. I mean, I don't know. If, I, I think this would be weird if it was you know, today or 1959. Uh, they were all dead, I guess, is what I'm getting to. And it was very, very strange circumstances. Six of them died from hypothermia and three of them from fatal injuries. There was no indication there was anyone else there. The They left the tent voluntarily. like They ripped it open from the inside like they had to get out. And they had died six to eight hours after the last meal. And then traces from the camp showed that they left the campsite on their own volition, on foot. So they voluntarily left. They were not dragged from it. They weren't forced from it. There was high levels of radiation, which is strange, on one of the victims' clothing. And you know, one of the theories that there was an attack of the indigenous Mansi people, they said they couldn't have been caused by another human being because the force of the blows had been too strong and no soft tissue had been damaged. So they, that was one of the, the theories that they were, which makes sense, they were attacked by indigenous people, but really nothing substantiated that. And it wasn't until May 4th when the weather warmed enough for investigators to really track down everyone else. They were found a few dozen feet from the campfire and their bodies lodged in a creek bed. So the autopsy showed that the first six hikers died from hypothermia. The three in the ravine suffered a variety of terrible injuries, skull and chest fractures. One woman's eyes and tongue were missing, yet there was no signs of struggle, which seems to rule out foul play. It's been said that maybe... At that point, animals came, like kind of scavenger animals, and that's and that's what caused that. And there was one photo showing tree markings made by local Monsi people. Another shows an unidentified figure that some people believe could have been a yeti. So there's that that strange theory. And officials first suspected that the Mansi people were offended that they were there and they caused to attack them, but they pretty much came to the conclusion that no one else was there. So it was just them, which makes it even more of a mystery. By the end of May, the end of the investigation, the initial investigation, the cause of death were listed as, quote, compelling natural force. Avalanche was the most popular of them. Uh, Extreme high winds, animal attack, possible... uh, psychedelic drugs making them which is i guess uh, that can be said for anything it's like on drugs and they went crazy they get stranger from here though things i've never heard of and my pronunciation is not going to be good but a carman vortex street what is that i'm not a scientist but it produces infrared infrasound capable of inducing panic attacks so it's a sound that happens in nature under certain circumstances and the sound makes you go crazy and tear off your clothes and do things you wouldn't normally do and since there was radioactivity on the clothes 
maybe they stumbled into a military weapons experiment that was part of a conspiracy. A lot of these are very conspiracy-based. Uh, aliens. Locals told officials that they spotted unidentified flying objects over the area. And again, the 1950s was a great time for UFOs and you know UFOlogists and people seeing UFOs. And it was later revealed that the military was testing parachute mines in the region when the group was killed. There's another strange one. Paradoxal undressing. So I guess when you reach a state of hypothermia, you f- even though you're freezing, you feel a burning as your, your body is adjusting to it or however that works. And then you, the feeling that you need to like tear off your clothes because you feel like you're burning, but you're actually freezing and they just rip themselves out of the tent and no one can really explain why there was no evidence that an avalanche had taken place and no one reported avalanches in the area the hikers footprints were visible not covered by snow so you can see that there was no avalanche and the tent collapsed laterally but there's no evidence of a horizontal force that indicated sliding snow or ice and this wasn't that long ago 1959 is relatively recent, although they've done many, many more revisits to this, trying to trying to figure this out, and still it's it's inconclusive. And if you're interested, there's a lot of really great photos that you can look at that you don't always have access to, or there aren't always available when something like this happens. So it's worth checking out. The Longest Flight, January 1959. In order to take a break from the gloom and doom, I wanted to mention something that was a little more interesting and uplifting. Is a publicity stunt from the Hacienda Hotel in Las Vegas, but it is the longest manned refueled flight that happened in 1959 on a modified Cessna 172. Judy and Warren Bailey were trying to get the Hacienda Hotel in Las Vegas. The traction it needed needed some good PR, some family-friendly publicity, and he was like, I'm going to back an endurance flight, which sounds perfect for the 1950s. So slot machine mechanic Bob Tim and airline pilot John Wayne Cook ended up breaking up the world record on January 23rd, 1959. When they finally landed, they've been in the air around Southern Nevada, California, and Arizona for 64 days, 22 hours, and 19 minutes. They installed a 95-gallon tank on the plane, which brought the fuel capacity to 142 gallons, and it could be refueled midair by grabbing a hose from a refueling truck and a hook and a winch, an electric pump transfer fuel up into the tanks. They did that twice a day. They arranged meetings. With a tanker truck, the pilot's seat had been removed and the swing fuselage door replaced with an accordion fold door for easy entrance and exit while the plane was in flight. They had a little sink so they could shave and brush their teeth and they had a quart bottle of water on the platform. I've never found any information what they did when they went to the bathroom and I've looked and some people made the assumption on Reddit that they just... uh, pooped in a bucket and then just threw it out the window hopefully nobody being below them and i haven't seen anything else to confirm or deny that 
There was a cushion running the length of the fuselage for sleeping, but they never really slept very well. It was kind of impossible to sleep during the day. The engine made it very difficult to sleep. And their food was prepared from the Hacienda kitchen. And it was ground up and put in thermoses so they can be passed up to the cockpit more easily. So when they would refuel, they'd also get food. That's how they got hot water, towels, laundry from the supply truck during the refueling runs. And they broke the record on January 23rd. They decided to stay in flight for another 17 days just to make sure that no one has beat them and no one has. And it turned out to be a success for the Hacienda, which stayed in business until 1996. I want to thank NPR, All That's Interesting, The Guardian, Atlas Obscura, and the LA Times. If you would like to help out the show, please rate and review wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And you could follow on Instagram at Strange Year Pod. And I'll be back next week for another episode of Strange Year. Pause the podcast you're listening to right now and subscribe to Ghost Town. Ghost Town is me, Rebecca Lieb. And me, Jason Horton. And we explore all kinds of weird history, true crime, hauntings, paranormal events, and more. We cover the Slenderman stabbing, Tesla's death ray, the D.B. Cooper copycat, the cheerleader murder plot, Heaven's Gate, the Lars Midtank mystery, and Tuesday's Child, Ellie's first satanic magazine, just to name a few. You can find Ghost Town on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts.